0: live in a world and in a time an age that is deeply suspicious of Christian claims to ultimate truth and so I would argue for a return or recovery or an emphasis on Christian aesthetics that is Christianity understood through the lens of beauty
1: listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host Stephen Roach.
0: This is season two, episode four. When Dostoevsky said beauty will save the world, it wasn't a, a quip, but it was a prophecy. And I, I think he's right. I, I think if Christianity doesn't return to a, a stance and a posture that the wider public would generally regard as beautiful, then we're not moving forward and we're going to continue to be dismissed, ignored, and perhaps rightfully so.
1: Welcome back everyone and thank you for listening to Makers and Mystics. I'm excited to share these next few episodes with you. I had the honor and privilege of sitting down with author and pastor Brian Zond who wrote the book Beauty Will Save the World. And we discussed the role of art and beauty in presenting the Christian faith to what some would term a post-Christian culture. And honestly, I had a very difficult time editing this podcast. There was so much rich content Brian was bringing that I decided to divide it up into a two part series. And so this is part one of my interview with Brian Zond Beauty Will Save the World. Well, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today, and I've read your book, Beauty Will Save the World, and it has been one of the more inspiring reads that I've had in my hands uh, in the past several months, and most folks that know me know that I read quite a bit, and so this book, I've returned to it several times already, so thanks for for making this work, and thanks for um, taking the time to talk with me about it.
0: Well, thank you, Stephen.
1: And uh, for our listeners, uh, can why don't you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself? You and your wife uh, live in St. Joseph, Missouri, is that correct?
0: That's correct, yes.
1: And you pastor a church called
0: Word of Life Church. We founded the church 35 years ago. Wow. <laughs> I'm 57. I've pastored this church for, as I say, 35 years. I'm also a writer when I can find the time. I've written six books, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's what I do. I mean, everything that I do theologically is going to come from a pastoral perspective, because it's what I know. It's what I've been doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a product of the Jesus movement. Even though we officially say our church began in 1981, Mm -hmm. it it grew out of a coffee house ministry mm-hmm. from the Jesus movement period that I was leading from the time I was 17. And in many respects, I was doing the work of a pastor even then. So I tell people, look, I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> and it's, I don't recommend that. I'm not saying that's a model, but, but it's it's also what happened. So, yeah, yeah. so that's what I I'm a pastor, writer, travel. Pretty frequently, yeah. Actually, quite a bit. Uh, I can do that now. We have a good staff and good team, and so I can be away speaking in conferences, and I do a lot of that too.
1: Well, it seems like just from this book in particular, you have a real heart and passion for the creative arts and how that applies to our faith.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've always—I don't know—I've always resonated with the artists. Uh, they seem to get what I'm trying to do quicker than others, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And even in my theological studies, uh, if I start talking about who's influenced me, sure, I'll say New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, the- theologians like Stanley Hauerwas and David Bentley Hart. But I have been just, if not more, influenced by um, Fyodor Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. who... You know, wasn't a theologian; he was a novelist. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes I tell people, what he really, really was, was this awesome theologian disguised as the world's greatest novelist. So, yeah, I, I think the arts are as legitimate a vehicle for commuting, communicating truth as anything we have. Mm. So, so I love music. I love literature, and that's a big part of who I am.
1: Yeah, well. Right from the the back of your book, I was reading um, the paragraph describing it. It says, for thousands of years, artists, sages, philosophers, and theologians have connected the beautiful and the sacred and identified art with our longing for God. And um, can you tell me a little about that? I know that's a a big part of what your book, um, which if I didn't mention it already, the book that we're talking from is called Beauty Will Save the World, which... That is a that is a quote from Dostoevsky, correct? It actually is, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, well, where to start? Let's start with the Greek philosophers. Um, the Greek philosophers spoke of three prime virtues, the true, the good, and the beautiful. As virtues, they are not utilitarian. They are not utilities. They are not a means to an end. They are the end in themselves. So they need no further justification. So we would say we want the true because it's true. We want the good because it's good. Mm -hmm. We want the beautiful because it is beautiful. It needs no other justification. It's not a utility that serves some other end. Later, the church fathers would identify what the Greek philosophers had called these prime virtues as attributes of God, and I think their instinct was correct. Mm -hmm. Now, here we are 2,000 years into the history of Christianity, and we have a long history of what we would call Christian apologetics. This is a Christian defense of truth as understood through Christ. Mm -hmm. We also have a long history of Christian ethics This would be the good as defined in light of Christ. Christian aesthetics, though, uh, has had a mixed history. Mm -hmm. I think there have been times when the church has been good at it, or at Mm -hmm. least better than others. But I think in modernity, we've arrived at a place where we have, with the wider culture, pretty much dismissed beauty as a prime virtue, we tend to think of it as mere adornment. Mm. and But here's our situation, Stephen, that we're in right now in the uh, modern post-Christian secular West, which is not the whole world. I understand that, but it's my context, mm-hmm. and it's probably the context of most of those that are listening to this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live in a world and in a time, an age, that is deeply suspicious of Christian claims to ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not forfeiting that claim. I, I, I think we have that claim, but I'm just, I'm just acknowledging that which is the case that the wider mm-hmm. culture is pretty deeply suspicious of that, and even maybe more so any Christian claim to a superior ethic. Mm-hmm. And so we have this great history of Christian apologetics and ethics, but I don't think they help us much right now. I'm not saying they're, they're illegitimate. I just don't think as far as gaining a wider audience uh, in our secular age, they do us much good. I think they're pretty much dismissed out of hand. But that does leave beauty. Mm-hmm. And so so what I would argue for, and I know we're speaking a little bit in abstract terms here, but I would argue for a return or recovery or an emphasis on Christian aesthetics. Mm-hmm. That is uh, Christianity understood through the lens of beauty. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what the book's about. And we can continue to go into that if you like. But, but uh, well, maybe I will touch on how, how the title of the book came about. Um, mm-hmm. Fyodor Dostoevsky, 19th century Russian novelist. His his four great books are the brothers Karamazov, Crime and Punishment, Demons, and The Idiot. In The Idiot, which he wrote in the 1860s, he was was trying to create a perfect character, a Christ-like character. And this is the character of Prince Mishkin, who is a man that's so without guile, so without the agenda of self-interest, that he appears in Russian society – as something of an idiot to them. And yet everyone is drawn to him and finds him uh, almost irresistible in love. Well, throughout the novel, on I think three or four occasions, we, we never actually hear Prince Mishkin say beauty will save the world. Rather, what we hear other people report they had heard Prince Mishkin say beauty will save the world. It's in no way significant or material or essential to the plot. You could take out those little references and it wouldn't really affect the novel at all. Mm -hmm. And yet, it has captured the imagination of philosophers and writers and thinkers ever since. Mm. Uh, When Alexander Solzhenitsyn received the Nobel Prize for literature and was giving his Nobel lecture, uh, he referred to that. And he said, when Dostoevsky said beauty will save the world, it wasn't a. What was it, I can't remember. But he said it wasn't a. I don't know. A quip, but it was a prophecy. Mm-hmm. I know he used the word. It's a prophecy, and I, I think he's right. I, I think if Christianity doesn't return to a, a stance and a posture that the wider public would generally regard as beautiful, Mm -hmm. then I think we're not moving forward. And and we're going to continue to be dismissed, ignored, and perhaps rightfully so. Correct me if I'm wrong, but a phrase from your book that comes to
1: mind that seems to really address that concern, uh, you said, the cross is the beauty of Christianity, because it is at the cross that we encounter co-suffering love and costly forgiveness in its most beautiful form. And then you you went on to say, in a culture that idolizes success, can we see beauty in the cross? In a culture that equates beauty with a pretty face, can we see past the horror of a grisly execution and discern the sacred beauty beneath the surface? And man, when I read that, and as an artist and as a musician and as a, as a poet, I'm really moved to think of beauty in a new way and what it means for a christian aesthetic you know what does it mean for us as christian artists and thinkers you know what does that mean for us to portray or embody beauty to this culture that is vastly post-christian as you said can you elaborate on that idea a, a little bit more like how we as believers would embody the aesthetic that
0: you're that you're calling for yeah let's back up and let's just let's talk about beauty itself for a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've written a whole book that has the theme of beauty, and in doing that, I became aware of two things. One, how few synonyms there are for the word beautiful. There aren't really that many. Mm. And two, how actually difficult the word is to define. I can't remember what the standard dictionary definition of beauty is, but if you look it up, you'll read it, and you'll go, yeah, okay, that's Mm -hmm. true enough, but it still doesn't seem to capture it. So beauty... Even though we have an eye for it and we recognize it, it's a little bit difficult for us to actually say what it is. But no matter what else we would say about beauty, it seems to be connected to form Hmm. so that whether it's a poem, a painting, a song, a sculpture, it's something about the form, the structure, the arrangement of the poem, the painting, the song, the sculpture – or whatever work of art we're talking about, that comprises its beauty. Mm-hmm. So that if the, if the form is damaged enough, then it loses its beauty. Right. So um, if we're going to talk now in terms of Christianity, because this is what I'm talking about, uh, what is the beautiful form of Christianity? And I would say it's the cruciform, that is the cross, but here we've arrived at a tremendous i guess i want to say mystery maybe not mystery is the right word i, I think we've arrived at something that's highly significant cuz let's keep in mind i know it's it's hard sometimes for us but let's try to remember that the cross was an intentionally hideous object right it it was it was devised and utilized by an occupying military empire to psychologically terrorize uh the populaces that it dominated and so for example i I think i talk about this in the book there was a point in my life early on when i might see a beautiful crucifix let's say whether it's a painting or a sculpture I would see a crucifix that most people would say in some way is beautiful, even a work of art, and I would protest. I would push back, and I would say, well, it didn't look like that. It isn't true to uh, what happened on Good Friday. Uh-huh. Now, that's a true statement, but I was mistaken because, you see, the role of the artist is not necessarily to give us a journalistic photograph or reporting, but rather help us Attend and to see again that which we may have missed. Mm-hmm. Take for example, I think I hope most of our listeners will be familiar with this. Take for example Van Gogh's most famous painting, Starry Night. Mm-hmm. You know with those swirls of stars. Mm-hmm. Now, if I and and most people would say, well, that that's a beautiful painting. Now, does a Starry Night look like that? Mm-hmm. Well, no. Except yes, it does. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't it doesn't objectively look like that. If you go out on a starry night and look up at the heavens, you don't see these swirls of stars the way that uh, Van Gogh mm-hmm. has put them on canvas. And yet what Van Gogh is doing is saying to those that see his painting, pay attention. Mm-hmm. Beauty all around you. Yeah. Consider the beauty of a starry night. You've forgotten how awe-inspiring it is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, now, the cross, when, when, when an artist depicts a beautiful rendering of the crucifix, they're doing that same thing. They're saying, yes, at one level. If, if, if you had, for example, a journalistic photograph of what happened outside the gates of Jerusalem on Good Friday, mm-hmm. you might look at it one time, be repulsed by it, revolted by it and never look at it again. I I understand that. But what we need to remember is those of us that confess Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen Lord of glory, Mm -hmm. we confess that this, in fact, is the most beautiful moment in salvation history. Uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, great Swiss theologian, said, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. So what Rome intended to be hideous and repulsive and ugly, God in Christ through love has turned into uh, an image of supreme beauty. And so this is what I think we have to ask ourselves, those of us that are engaged in communicating the gospel and trying to minister to people and do all the stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not enough to ask, is it true? Is it good? We must, we must, we must ask the third question, is it beautiful? And we don't get to say whether it's beautiful. That's left to the common person. Yeah. Would the common person say, yeah, that that that's beautiful? Mm-hmm. And so I think especially in the North American context, uh, the church, for various reasons, has felt threatened, has felt intimidated, has uh, has has felt like it's losing power and control and all of these sorts of things. And that, and we've lashed out and presented to our neighbors uh, the wagging finger, mm-hmm. the furrowed brow, the clenched fists of protest. And I think all of that's ugly, and people recognize it as such. And so we need to ask ourselves, is our posture, is what we're doing, our programs, our sermons, our presence in the community, is it – is it compatible? Does it conform to the cruciform? Is it like Christ upon the cross, arms outstretched and proffered embrace, praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Which I think almost everyone says there's something beautiful there. Mm-hmm. There's something beautiful about this innocent man, uh, not calling out for revenge, but offering forgiveness. And this is why you get the, the, the account of the Roman centurion saying, truly, this must be a son of God. This is this is not what we're used to seeing. This, I'm quite sure this hardened, cynical Roman centurion had crucified who knows how many people. Because yeah. um, one of the things that we miss sometimes as Christians, we think of the crucifixion as some unique thing that only happened to Jesus. <laughs> one way of describing the crucifixion is it was one of three that day. <laughs> and and when Jesus was a small boy, some 2,000 would-be revolutionaries from nearby Sepphoris, only about seven miles from Nazareth, were crucified by the Romans. Mm. And so I assume this centurion had presided over maybe hundreds, who knows, of crucifixions. And yet something about Jesus causes him to remark, uh, this is not what I'm used to seeing. This, yeah. this, there's something divine about this. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, that that brings to mind several things, even with the centurion, seeing something in a different light. I, I read this thing recently that is attributed to the painter Henry, Henry Matisse, and he was asked what makes a great artist, and his response was a great artist is someone who allows us to see the world in a new way, or someone who allows us to see the world in a way we haven't seen before and how how much does that even ascribe itself to what you just said you know with um with with jesus even on the cross in that horrible situation this man had seen millions of times before you know many times before he enabled him to see the world in a different way and i think what you're saying provokes in me is that same desire you know to to be able to to present the world in a different way
0: you know i i think that's right on um, again, art is is a difficult to define, and mm-hmm. so I won't try to define art. I, I will say that it seems to me that what art is trying to do is, in some way, depict the mystery of being. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can be dull. To the fact that uh, we are all presently, no, no matter how, I mean, it can be just, you know, here, we're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. It's just another Tuesday afternoon where I'm at. It's kind of a gray, cloudy winter's day. And if I'm not careful, I can slip into just being dulled and not realizing I am. I exist. I have been hurled into the mystery of being. And... You know, sometimes they'll have people say, "Well, you know, where are all the miracles?" And I want to say, "What <laughs> is a miracle? I mean, what isn't a miracle? Existence itself." And I think the artists, at their best, and, and we have to talk about the difference between art and propaganda. But mm-hmm. true art, not propagand- propagandistic art, but true art, is well, the artist themselves is enthralled with the mystery of being Now that most of them aren't going to use that word. I mean, they're not going to describe it like that because they do it without self consciousness, but in some way they are enthralled by the, by the mystery of being the, uh, you know, just the, that they exist and that life is happening. And so they, they paint it, they write a poem, they write a novel, they write, they write a song. You, You know, James Joyce wrote Ulysses, which, um, I have read, and dang, it's difficult. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's, uh-huh. I, you know, I, don't th- I don't think you can read it without professional help. I mean that honestly. <laughs> I, I tried twice and failed, and then finally I bought a series of lectures from a university uh, literature professor that helped me understand it. But what, what he's doing, Ulysses uh, follows the life fo- – follows, no, follows one man – through a 24-hour period. Uh, just uh, uh, in some ways a relatively ordinary day in Dublin in whatever year it was, 1916, is that what I want something like that. And June something 1916 in Dublin. And you're with Bloom, Harold Bloom. And uh, but what he does, and it really is genius what he does. There's there's a lot that he does in this novel. But he show he calls it Ulysses because he's he's showing you that if we can just be attentive to it, that in a single day, a single day, an ordinary man can go through as many adventures as Ulysses in the Odyssey, and in his great epic, you know, return home. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's what the artists do best, mm-hmm. and a good artist doesn't need to necessarily work with something that in itself is spectacular. Mm-hmm. A, a great artist can write a song, or paint a poem, or paint a painting, or write a poem, or write a novel about something very ordinary that we all experience, and yet we go, "Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is this is what life really actually is like."
1: Yes, you know um, that reminds me of even back to the Van Gogh painting. You know, he he took what could have been an ordinary sky, but just the way that he interpreted it. He brought a sense of wonder and a sense of beauty to that which was otherwise and or uh, Perhaps, I mean, there's a beauty in this guy, but I think you know what I mean? Just like, you know, we're talking about this Tuesday afternoon, how, how much wonder is all around us, but, um, you know, often we miss, miss it, and it's the artist that, that really helps to recapture that for us. And I, I think, to me, there's something very primal that reconnects us to the core of our humanity in that. And I think that's part of why... I, I think you would agree with me that the artist plays a a significant role uh, in the redemptive process of restoring our humanity, perhaps to the original design or something even greater, you know, but but just putting us back um, in touch with the design that God had in mind for us. And I think it was Ravi Zacharias who said, the loss of wonder is the beginning of depravity or something like that.
0: Yeah, Um, I I think he's... I know he, I know he's dealt with that. So yeah, I remember that specifically. Yeah, um, yeah. Wonder is what children have naturally, mm-hmm. and it's what we seem to oftentimes lose. Uh, I think in the book, I, I tell a story. I tell this story. This occurred way back in um, I, I think the year two thousand so long time ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love the mountains. My family and I, we've been going to the mountains. You know, I live in the the, the flatlands of the Midwest, but uh, we try to get to the mountains two or three or more times a year in Colorado. And uh, one evening during our summer vacation out there, I had gone up high into the mountains about I was on a ridge about 12,000 feet by myself and there'd been a big storm that that had come through and uh, the storm was now moving off to the east and I was sitting on this ridge watching this glorious sunset over the never summer mountains could still hear some of the rumbling of the thunderstorm as it moved away from us and while I sat there no one was around uh seven bull elk came up on that ridge hmm. and they were, they were completely unconcerned about my presence. So I just sat there near them and as the sun was setting and it was because there'd been a thunderstorm, it was really this spectacular sunset and this one bull elk lifted up his head and his antlers, um, formed like a, a perfect frame for the sunset. And it was, it it was such stunning beauty that it really did take my breath away. Mm -hmm. And I found myself praying and I said, God, I want to live my life in a constant state of wonder. Mm -hmm. And I felt the spirit of the Lord speak to me. And i try to be very judicious in using that phrase. I'm I'm cautious about that. I'm suspicious of people that use it too much. (laughs) I don't want to say, God told me, God told me, God told me. I don't want to say that. But even though I had prayed, it was it was it was as much it was just a a, a yearning that, that I did give expression to, oh God, I want to live my life in a constant state of wonder, without anticipating a response, I sensed the spirit say to me, This is the greatest wonder of all. The word became flesh and dwelt in us. Wow. And that really put me on a new trajectory of exploring the mystery and the beauty of the Incarnation, that the Word would become flesh and live among us, uh, which, which itself is, I don't know if I've ever, ever used this expression, but itself is a kind of artistic endeavor.
1: Uh-huh.
0: That, that God working through the medium of human flesh says, I will communicate what the divine is like. Uh-huh. So th- the Word of God is the life that Jesus lived. His life has a kind of artistry to it, which is why he's easily the most depicted uh, human in art history. But not just, not just a portrait of how we imagine Jesus looks, but just the things he does. Turning water to wine uh, or walking on water, calming the storm, mm-hmm. raising Lazarus, on and on it goes. Uh, th- there is something of an artistic performance of his life. The other person I think that that came close to understanding that and and doing the same would be Saint Francis of Assisi, mm-hmm. whose whole life seems to be something of a uh, act in sacred performance art. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to put, I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, but, but he, he he wasn't just preaching; he wasn't just going about uh, the communication of the gospel and in, in the uh, conventional ways it was the life he lived Mm -hmm. and i think i i think he has done as good a job as anyone since christ of imitating christ Mm -hmm. Uh, and and he and he seemed he he, you know he 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 did write a poem or two but we don't think of him as an artist typically you know he's not a painter he's not really a writer or anything like that but his life Mm -hmm. has this artistic quality to it yeah
1: yeah, you know, and I think for me, when I when I see someone like St. Francis of Assisi, and what you're saying, like his art, his life had a particular artistry to it. Um, I feel like you know that's something that I aspire to in my own life is is not just to produce these creative or imaginative works, but that the way that I live my life, the way that I portray um, the reality of God through my own life becomes. A portrait, or becomes an art in itself, you know. And I think, in one way, that is a redemption. that That's part of that redemptive process that we get to participate in. When I look throughout history and I see folks like Picasso or even Van Gogh, I, uh, I know he his life ended in a rough way, um, you know. But these guys that were just incredibly creative, but their lives were in complete shambles. They were they were complete messes. And one of my own hopes is that, perhaps like St. Francis, there could be an artistry, and I think that's our invitation, if, if I could be so bold to say that, I, I believe that's part of our invitation from God as artist, is to take Jesus' example, the way He said He lived, uh, the way His life unfolded really was artistry in motion, so to speak, and, and I think that's an invitation for our whole lives to be a work of art. This is the end of part one of my interview with Brian Zond, and I'll be posting part two to this interview just on the other side of the Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Conference. And I'll also be posting some of the keynote messages from the Breath in the Clay Conference at that point as well. Thank you guys so much for listening, and thank you for the emails I've been receiving from folks all over the world, just encouraging me about how these podcasts, interviews, and keynote messages have been inspiring you and challenging you. And so write me an email. I'd love to hear from you. You can go to makersandmystics.com and get in touch with me that way. We'll see you next time.